Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of HGF Third Culture Kid, where I, as a third culture kid, share my thoughts, experiences, and conversations. Uh, I think the last time I recorded this podcast episode, it was about almost a month ago. Uh, and to recap, what has gone on? I applied to some student organizations to be either their Waddell rep or um, mood court. Uh, I had my first midterm actually just a few days ago. It's an ungraded midterm, so I guess not really a big deal, but uh, it gave me a taste of what maybe an exam might look like at law school. Boy, was that a surprise in a few ways, not a surprise in other ways. Um, I've gotten to meet new people and also just get into deeper friendships with uh, some people I've known, I guess, since the start of law school too. Uh, It just feels very uh, different. I think when I, my first two weeks of law school, it felt like I was still getting my footing, still had some doubt and I was coming off some doubt whether this was the right choice for me to go to law school. Uh, But now I just feel very entrenched in my life that is law school, I, I just might be the preoccupi- preoccupation with the day-to-day that doesn't um, allow me to like think back uh, to my decision of coming to law school as much. Um, but my my life going forward is just very like focused on like the day-to-day, making sure I'm setting myself up well for the final exams. Um, yeah, it's just a very different mentality. All right. Well, that's it. Let me uh, recap uh, my time since my last podcast. So that would cover most of September up to around middle of October. Um, again, I, I tried it for the mood court and got in. Um, in Columbia Law, we have like specialized boot courts. There's like nine specialized mood courts for which you have to try out for. All the students by default uh, get into the foundation, not get in, but like they're going to have to take a foundation boot court class. But if you wanted to go into one of the specialized ones, you have to try out. Um, so I'll talk about that experience. I'll just talk about uh, my uh, studying, how like how I'm studying. It's, it's studying at law school was definitely um, maybe it's obvious, but it was it was a journey for me, like figuring out what works for me, what doesn't work for me, making some adjustments on the fly. Ideally, you get this done like before law school, but there's nothing quite like being in the actual experience and actually experiencing it to then really learn what the adjustments um, are that you have to make. Uh, so I'll talk about that. I'll also talk about my first midterm. Um, how I am also eating, like my, like how I'm cooking and how I'm not cooking. Yeah, just my eating habits and and means. Yeah, I guess I'll talk about those things. Hopefully, yeah, I don't know. This may be a podcast that might be helpful for people who are thinking about going to law school and also just uh, people who are just curious about, I guess, the life of a, a third culture kid in law school. So anyway, starting with law school, uh, not not law school. <laughs> Starting with mood court, uh, I uh, joined a specialized mood court that 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 specializes in intellectual property. So the topic that we'll be discussing is like intellectual property, and then for my mood court tryout, 
there was like a very simple like questionnaire I had to fill out, in, including why I'm interested in the mood court. Uh, I'm not quite interested in intellectual property, but I'm interested in tech and law, specifically legal tech. And and legal tech is if if I have to like really briefly summarize what's the difference between like law, science, and technology versus like legal tech. Tech law is more about, um, in my opinion, imposing the law on technological practices, industry, and things. So like, how should digital privacy be governed? What is yeah? What are what is the legal theories and um, legal doctrines that should be governing how technology operates, for example? Um, and then legal tech is more like how technology can then be imposed or applied in law to help with the law. So like the direction of influence is just switched, whether you're talking about like tech law versus legal tech. And as an, as an example of legal tech, like it would be like whether you can use algorithms to help predict holdings in future cases using prior cases, for example. Anyway, so that's kind of my interest. Um, so intellectual property is not quite that, uh, but it was a moot court that was closest to that subject matter that I'm interested in. And I'm also interested in litigation. And, and that was a tip that I got from um, the upperclassmen, that if you are interested in litigation, which is basically very roughly um, in the dealings, whether in your law firm or a lawyer, that will eventually go to litigation. And I think the prototypical image that people have in mind is like when you go to a courtroom, all that would go into um, dealing in a courtroom or if it doesn't go to a courtroom and settling a dispute, I guess when there are disputes, that's the stuff that litigation deals with. And that is that, that's not just going into a courtroom and then arguing and being an oral advocate, but that would also be like preparing briefs in preparation for litigation, maybe also... I still need to figure this out, but I imagine like preparing for depositions as well, um, doing some legal research to be able to craft the argument that be you, that you'd be using in litigation. And there's a lot of steps that go behind litigation. There's like discovery as well. Discovery is like where both parties, the opposing party and the party that you're representing, share information and evidence with each other that would be relevant to to the issue that is at dispute. Um, that's a whole process, discovery, getting all the evidence. Um, and because there's so many steps in litigation before you go into a courtroom, a lot of cases will actually settle. I don't know the exact number, but a lot of cases will actually settle. I like to say that it's, I think the most of the cases will actually settle. Um, uh, but still that's, I'm, I think that's under litigation. Uh, and then the other path, like there's, there's two paths generally. Um, if you're in law school and you want to go practice law, it's either going to be I guess if you that's especially if you go into big law firms, because if you become a prosecutor, you're like by definition a litigator. Uh, but if you go to big law, uh, where that's usually especially people from Colombia they go to, um, it's either going to be like transactional law or litigation. Um, and transactional law is more like helping drafting agreements, uh, contracts. What else? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. When I say agreements, like agreements that are used in mergers and acquisitions uh that was advice i got if that if you want to do litigation you should go into a specialized smooth court so i applied and then also you got that subject matter interest that i'm interested to and this moot court was kind of adjacent to that um, and then 
Oh yeah, so that was a written application where I had to describe my interests and also answer like a true or false question. And then I had, after that we had like oral argument tryout. And then for the oral arguments, I just had to argue one point. Um, and that's it for like three minutes. Uh, it could be about anything I wanted to talk about. And it just so happened that I, uh, I, the, 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 the argument that I made in the mood court was something that I actually argued on the podcast. So I talked about why Elon Musk is a greater entrepreneur than Steve Jobs. I still, to this day, don't think that's like super controversial. Uh, but there were definitely some um, questions that came up that challenged my thinking about this. Oh, and I should say that I tried, for, um, I tried out for three mood courts. I didn't know if I would get into these. Um, because when I was in college, I also tried out for a mock trial and I didn't get in. So because of that experience, I was like, I cannot take these tryouts for granted and I just think that I'm going to get in. So I applied to three mood courts and I'm the only one that I know from my class and from the peers that I talked to that tried out for three mood courts. And because of the prep that would involve that was involved in like trying for these mood courts and like the statements of interest, you know, the that for each of the mood courts, it wasn't. A large word count but it was like 300 to 500 words i think not all of them but some of them and you know you have to put in some thought to i think craft uh yeah not to repeat myself but a thoughtful um statement of interest so yeah it took me some time and i was super exhausted during that time i was preparing for the mood courts and then i had uh, makeup classes meaning classes that were canceled in like the next few months were actually front loaded to the earlier months. So I had more classes than usual during that week uh, or during those weeks. And yeah, I was just really exhausted. Uh, and that's, yeah, I don't feel that exhausted, exhausted now. So I'm glad for that, but I was like really exhausted. Uh, three moo courts. Uh, and yeah, I used this, this oral argument for Elon Musk um, being a great entrepreneur and Steve Jobs in this one, this APLA, uh, APLA is the mood court, the name of the mood court, and, the, and another one. And then I got a range of questions uh, because in the tryout, the board members of the mood court are going to act as judges. They're going to play a role as judges, and then the judges are going to interrupt you with questions that are going to test your argument and make sure it's sound. Um, yeah, but my experience was interesting. When I There are some people that, uh, in, at least for this APLA mood court, uh, I talked to a few folks and I asked them how the, the tryouts were because there was a few people that tried out before me. And then they were like, oh yeah, you know, I presented for like two and a half minutes and there was like only 30 seconds for questions. So I thought my experience was going to be uh, like that, but that was not the case. I jumped in uh, 30 seconds into my argument. I was just bombarded with questions. Uh, and because I only had three minutes, my argument was pretty simple. It was basically, I, I'm going to compare their flagship product. Uh, the, for Elon Musk, it's going to be the Tesla. And then for Steve Jobs, it's going to be the iPhone. Uh, and then I was going to talk about how the impact for the Tesla was a lot more uh, just impactful to humankind than the iPhone. The crux of the argument was that Tesla revolutionized the electric vehicle industry. Um, and doing so really crafted a sizable solution to an environmental problem that threatens the survival of mankind, and that's global warming. 
And the iPhone, what it really did, although it revolutionized smartphone industry, all it really did was just enhance user user uh, experience features. Like it just it just really made it pleasant for the user to use the phone. And that's not as like critical as solving a climate crisis. So that was kind of my argument. Uh, but the questions that I got were like, oh, isn't just a comparison comparison of the flagship products and comparison of the product and not really the entrepreneurs? Another question I got was like, but wasn't the iPhone the first of its kind? Uh, to which I said, not necessarily because there was a BlackBerry and BlackBerry was a smartphone. So, oh uh, yeah. The, the question was raised because there was, I think the judge was saying, or the, not the judge, the board member who was playing the judge was saying that, hey, the electric vehicles were around before, like Toyota, for example. So that's that's what that's that was like a counterpoint to try to say like the iPhone was the first of its kind. Then to which I responded, not necessarily. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was when you apply for the mood courts, you're asked to rank. So I applied to three, and then you're asked to rank um, all three of them. And uh, Apple was my first option, so I I'm glad uh, I got in. Broke the the um, not the curse, but uh, my haunting past of not being able to get into mock trial uh, in college. So I was very glad about that. And then um, some student organizations that I've been participating in and been involved in. One's called APALSA. That's like the Asian Pacific something. I don't know what the acronym stands for, but you know, for uh, a, a student group at the law school for Asians where um, you don't have to necessarily identify yourself as Asian, but uh, that's what you know, every just Asian students, um, and I guess Asian heritage slash culture at the law school. One of the bigger student orgs definitely has uh, got that bling money uh, because one of the events that I went to, they rented out a whole karaoke uh, place. And I don't know if that's funding from like the law school. Maybe it's also coming from alumni. I wouldn't be surprised if it's coming from alumni. Um, but, uh, definitely, uh, it was definitely a flex and I, I had fun in that event. I, I applied to be a one L rep, um, for that group, but I did not get it. Unfortunately, I think the people that got picked definitely, uh, at least the ones that I know, good group of people for sure. So, um, applause to them. Uh, but I, yeah, I applied because I really liked the people, uh, at Apalsa. Um, but that is still, I can participate in the event. So that's all good. Uh, I also applied to be uh, a 1L rep at their um, at the Columbia's like legal tech club. This one's a, a new club, kind of. I mean, I think it started last semester. Uh, it was pretty active maybe three years ago, but then COVID happened. And I, I imagine a lot of like the more fledgling, not as mature uh, student groups were more affected by COVID than the more established student groups. And... Uh, yeah, I think I think it's at some point in 2019 or a little bit afterwards that legal tech clubs didn't do much, and then it's restarting. It's restarted or became a lot more active starting last semester. But uh, I applied, became a 1L rep for that one, and to my uh, to my word of mouth knowledge, when I talked to a few folks, like how their 1L rep experiences are, and then when I talked to like 2Ls and 3Ls, how the 1L rep experiences were. Generally speaking, uh, I was told that they didn't do that much work. 
but uh, I am finding that that's not the case for me so far. <laughs> it's not a lot of work, but I do have to do a little bit of work. Um, but that's, I guess that's also, I mean, it was surprising in a little bit, but also I think it's good given that I get to play a role in what I believe to be a very important part of the future for law school. And not just law school, I mean, the law industry too. I, I feel like the law is very married to the relics of the past. It just seems to be like part of the culture in law to be very attached to the past. And the momentum of the past is so strong. It might just, and it's, it sound, maybe, some, maybe some of it's just inherent to the law. Maybe it's also like a part of the, rom, the romanticism of the law. Yeah. I could I could probably word this the right, right way, but there's something about being like very attached to the past and appreciating the past that is somewhat romantic about it. Yeah, and I, that's um, well, one you have the aspect of like laws more reluctant to adopt technology. <laughs> the exam software that we use like felt very old as well, um, and you just see like manifestations and examples that seem to support this idea that law is like very attached to the past and it's kind of backwards and also just a study of law in general is very in a way history based like a lot of the law that was made is due to the precedence uh of of cases that were tried before us and some of these cases like can go all the way back to like the 1800s and understanding this history and what was decided in the past determines what uh, how we're going to look at and assess cases, disputes, crimes, legal violations at the present. So it's, it's like it's in the nature of the way that the law operates, especially in the states, uh, that there is a strong attachment to the past. But I feel like that's an issue sometimes when that's in hierarchy, when the past reigns supreme. And this is not always the case, you know, some precedents will be overturned as well, but there's momentum from the past that the present must combat against. And sometimes that momentum is, is too strong. And especially like, you know, there are many courts in a nation. There are the, so I don't, know, I still don't have my law degree yet, but um, the courts uh, are structured such that you have uh, at the lower levels, the trial courts, you know, where you're gonna have a jury and then you, where you're gonna have um, a district judge that's going to try the case, but then the the holdings and the rulings that come out of the district court level they're not precedent. They don't have precedential authority. I don't know if it's going to be the Supreme Court appeal a court, and then like different states will have diff probably different structures. But all, every state, I think, almost every state, if not all of the states, are going to have district court level um, tr tr system. And then there's going to be like the appeal system. And then these might have precedential authority, I think, at the state level. And then the Supreme Court, uh, which is at the federal, national level, those will have definite precedential authority. And then the district courts must, from each of the states, must take notice. And whatever ruling that the Supreme Court has, the district courts then must follow that, uh, follow that rule uh, and the holding there. But what was I going to say? You know, I forgot. I forgot what I was going to say. District courts not having precedential authority. Yeah, so I guess I was talking about the the past and how yeah, when there's like yeah, so there there's a hierarchy within the court level court systems as well. But when the past reigns supreme, um 
Yeah, oh, when the past reign Supreme, why this was an issue is that, so let's say the Supreme Court, like, puts spits out a case, you know, and then the future, and then this case has a holding. Now it's going to affect district courts um, going forward. And then what, what that, if that Supreme Court ruling was recent, it's very, like, relevant. It's not backwards. It's very at point. Um, I don't know about at point. Maybe they, they did maybe the Supreme Court ruling was wrong at the time, so it's not really at point. But uh, at least from a, a temporal aspect, it's a very recent like holding. But then like if you go like 50 years from now, district courts that may, uh, I imagine like judges at the district court level who are thinking that, that the Supreme Court ruling wasn't, is not quite adequate. Maybe like, for example, technology has evolved so much that there's so many different facts of the situation that no longer fit really well with a, with a Supreme Court ruling that was rendered 50 years ago. But I imagine if I'm a district court judge, at least there's there must be some district court judges out there that would be very hesitant to rule according to what they think is right uh, and what may actually be right, because not everything that a district court judge might think is right is actually right. But if a district court thinks this is a right way and it's actually right. But then there's a Supreme Court ruling that would kind of contravene that. I don't imagine that there'd be some resistance for the district court to then rule in a way that is actually right. Um, if such circumstances and new circumstances arose since that Supreme Court ruling, where there are yeah circumstances that don't quite and should really inform and qualify the Supreme Court ruling, then yeah, if the past reigns supreme, then there will be some momentum that would impede, I imagine, district court judges to proceed in the right matter. Uh, anyway, that's kind of a tangent uh, on. <laughs> it's, a, it's a relevant tangent. It kind of went down the rabbit hole, but all this to say, I think that uh, the law quite is attached to the past. It's something that I've been learning and um, I feel like having more tech in the law is a step towards the future and what I think is the right step, but there's likely some resistance, and my guess is because of some tendency of the law to really be stuck to the past and willingly so. Okay, going back to student orgs. Oh yeah, so that's 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 the scope of my like student orgs um, activity. Uh, yeah, tips for future law school students. Um, I think during the pandemic, if you have a, a mentor from um, like a model, I have a peer mentor that's like a 3L and uh, the mentor is very impressive. Like in our, in the first year, uh, that person did lots of things, <laughs> lots of things, more than me, um, which may not say much, but I, be, I find it very impressive. Um, and that person also batch cooked and also went to the gym, but like was a rep for like two orgs, did a mood court. Um, but so this is consistent with my experience, but I feel like working remotely, your my productivity also increased because you your commute time was decreased if you work from home. And for my, uh, the 3L mentor, that person also studied from home. So there's just more time to do things. And then being a wild rep, also probably was less labor intensive because there's maybe, I don't know, 
Organ organizing physical events, for example, is not a possibility. So the scope of the work that you have to do is less. So all this to say that if you get a for future law school students, um, don't overwork yourself because you're trying to uphold to a standard that might uh, that a standard that somebody else has done, but for which circumstances were different for them. Um, Maybe there's going to be someone else here that can do, there's, I mean, clearly there's going to be someone else that can do a lot more than you can and then, that I can too, um, but you can't do more than, than your best. So just just a tip, like when there's a standard that seems to be like really high for you and you like try to get to that and you just feel it's excessive, uh, take that as a sign that maybe you need to uh, reprioritize and like offload some things. And for me, I feel like the, with, the, with the mood court, one student org where I have a board position in and just law school readings and all the assignments. And I'm also trying to like apply for scholarships too. That's like enough for me. Um, yeah, so take that uh, for what you will. And I live close to campus too. And I imagine if you lived far from campus, that might be, that might be uh, a little tougher too. Maybe, maybe not. I, I, uh, I'm very glad on, a, on another note, but a relevant one, on another good one note, uh, if you're debating between living close to campus and not close to campus, I highly recommend living close to campus. Uh, for me, I find that like super beneficial. Um, I can go to law school uh, whenever I want. And that's just, I think that's that's a kind of a blessing, especially when like, the library is close by too. Um, yeah, that's time that you can, you know, commute time, you can say, like, if you live far, you maybe just travel like an extra 20 minutes, but extra 20 minutes, round trip in, in one day is 40 minutes, and then 40 minutes over, like, f five weeks is, shoot, I don't know, but it's, like, three hours at least, right? 40 times five is 200, 200 divided by 60 is 3.3 hours and 40 minutes, I think. Anyway, no, three hours and 20 minutes, sorry. Um, that's, that's, that's a good amount of time. You can get like a whole class's reading done in like three hours. So I recommend living close to campus um, and <clears throat> finding a, a good place is, is good. Um, yeah, I, I like my studio right now. It's, uh, it's relatively quiet. It's not always quiet. Sometimes the neighbors will play like loud music um, and the, um, <laughs> the doorman at night. Uh, because I live on the first floor, the doorman at night, like one of the, the doorman uh, plays his like laptop and then full volume, no earphones, and I can hear it. Uh, I don't, maybe none of the other residents complained, but I've complained a few times and I've also complained to management, but you know, he still does that from, from time to time. So my solution was just to play some white noise in the background. Luckily, there's like this podcast out there that only produces white noise episodes and each episode produces like 12 hours of white noise and i just play that uh just you can just look for that on spotify and you'll be able to find that so that's been my solution i've also bought earplugs uh but it's nice just to be able to like study from home and not necessarily like have to go to the library and be able to focus um so find yourself a nice place for future law school students that's uh that's kind of my tip yeah what were they saying oh yes and yeah just uh find the things that if, if you want to uh, be ambitious in law school, find the things that uh, 
and find things that you like doing that kind of push you to the limit. But uh, be respectful of your limit is, is, my, is my advice. Well, granted, I'm still not done with my first year of law school, but that, that's at least the advice that I, I'm telling myself. Because still the priority to, and I think a lot of other people are going to say this, the priority in your first year is going to be your grades. And everything else, you know, you should, if you're interested, you should get involved with it as well. But um, yeah, I mean, if your priorities are not your grades, that's fine. So work around your priorities. But I, I think uh, whatever priority is supreme for you, and like primary for you work around that and don't uh don't take on so much so that you 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 sacrifice on that priority that's you know i'll find out sooner enough sooner or later by the end of my first year if that's the right advice but this is kind of the approach that i'm trying to take though i don't know if it's working out well for me that's one of the hard things about law school um it really is a mental game. And I got that advice from a few upperclassmen. That's like a really mental game. No, really just from one upperclassman. That's really a mental game. Uh, because there, throughout the semester, there is no real feedback loop in law school. At least, I think, most law schools, if not just mine. Uh, because there's no graded midterms. So you don't really know how well you're doing. And having midterms and assignments that are graded and handed back to you, like whether you get a B or A, that stuff like motivates you. Like there's motivation um, to try to do well academically. Uh, and I had that in college and I imagine a lot of folks did. But in law school, you do not have that. So you have to find it within yourself to be consistent, draw value out of the work that you're doing. Um, and although it's not visible, continue to do that so that by the end and only the end really it culminates and then then it becomes a little bit more visible uh the fruits of your labor are really tested uh at that final moment so but i think that that just paucity of no um, feedback loop no extrinsic motivators throughout the, the the semester that's definitely um a mental game uh, so that's another one. When I say another one, I guess another kind of ex- part of my law school experience that I just learned that I appreciated and also was challenged by. I guess I'll also talk about my eating. Um, so when I, my first month, I tried to like cook, batch cook, uh, and I eat a surprising amount. So when I batch cooked on a weekend day, like on a Sunday, I, the meals would last maybe just three days. Uh, but the lunches I would eat out, like after class, I would just pick something up. There's these food trucks um, uh, out there that like really close by to the law school that give like $10 meals. So that's pretty cheap. Um, so I'm comfortable getting those. And then for dinners, I would eat my batch cooked meals. My batch cooked meals would pretty much be, I just get some broccoli, uh, sprinkle them with olive oil, salt, pepper, and I get some carrots, do the same thing, put them in a baking pan, then bake them for like 15 minutes. There I have some like good source of vitamin A, vitamin C going. So covers some good nutritional basis. And then I'll get a protein and also bake that. Uh, whether, well, if it's a steak, I won't bake that. Um, just cook that for like 10 minutes. Uh, but if it's, uh, yeah, if I, if I get chicken breast, nah, not so much chicken breast. Chicken thighs, chicken drumsticks, I'll bake those. So chicken breast too. Uh, 
Did I bake those? Yeah, I would do like I do like some panko crusts on some chicken breast. We'll slather on first. So you get the chicken breast, you slather on some sour cream. Trust me, it works. And then you slather on some panko seasoning, and you can some add some paprika, salt, pepper, what have you. Uh, and then you put that. Oh, you probably want to add some cheese somewhere there too. And then you put that in the oven, bake it for like. God, I forget the times, 20 minutes, 18, 20, 18 to 20 minutes. You can look up the HelloFresh recipe for this. And then you have some like pretty juicy, soft chicken breast that is um, that is breaded. Uh, so yeah, I did those uh, and that will last, last like three days for me. Um, but I did that for the first month and I just, it was not filling it up, just the broccoli, carrots and the uh, chicken breast. So I added some rice and it was still not filling enough. And then I just, um, I think I also wanted more more taste and I was also getting tired of cooking so much. So I uh, found this like Korean service called uh, Manna Basket where they deliver you uh, pre-made meals uh, or nearly pre-made meals. When I say nearly pre-made, you'd have to just fry it, but they did all the seasoning and everything for you. Uh, in Korean food, there's just a lot of labor that goes into it. Uh, like, just think about our staple food, kimchi. That takes like a while to ferment. Um, and that's like our staple food. I don't know if there are many other staple foods in other nations that take that long. Um, like the generic version of it, but like our generic generic version of kimchi takes a while to cook, and many other foods like take a while to cook. Like the season to prepare like some sort of special ribs can take like an hour or two. Um, and this is just on the seasoning part, if I'm not mistaken. So, and then like there's like a beef bone broth soup called solongtang that takes like eight hours to cook, uh, and that's like a very popular food as well. I mean, I'll, I'm going off on a tangent, but. Anyway, Korean food, yeah, there's a lot of hours that go into it. So if they made it uh, like nearly pre-made, then they shaved a shit ton of time from you. So I would, uh, yeah, I, I found a service that would make, uh, that would, for $70, they would ship like nearly six to seven servings of Korean food of different kinds of food. Uh, last time it was like, uh, it was like tteokgalbi. That's like, uh, what? Is, I don't know what that is. It's, it's kind of like, it's not... It's like ground beef kind of with with some sort of like sticky substance. Dokgarbi means dokgarbi. If you translate that directly, it's like rice cake plus beef slash ribs. Um, so it has a kind of like texture, like like a, a rice cakey texture with the beef. Uh, that sounds like a great description. Um, so there's so they would give that, and then uh, the, the they had that, and then it also had. Uh, the beef bone broth soup with some beef in it. And then I also had a special kind of ribs called karbijim. And then they also had like fish pancakes. And they also had this, uh, 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 some special noodles. It's called kachapche. Yeah, so a lot of different things for $70. So I found that service and I ordered that and then it just delivered right to your door. And that has saved me some time. It also, uh, it adds some more tasty cuisine in my life. Um, so th most recently, that's kind of uh, my, my dietary schedule. I'll eat something from a Madna basket. I'll also batch cook. Um, yeah, because I do, because I think the things that I cook, like broccoli and carrots and the meat, I think that's pretty healthy. So I'll do that, but I just don't feel as much pressure to always have that. 
uh, and then and then I'll eat out for lunch. That's kind of my mix. I even, but I did also look into getting some meal points because our campus has a cafeteria, as I imagine a lot of colleges do. And that the reason I looked into that was because I was hungry, and the way they serve it, it's like pretty much all you can eat, uh, like buffet style. So that would eliminate the the hunger issue for me. Like I wouldn't get, I wouldn't still be hungry after eating. Yeah, but so far I think the I think this with a manna basket service, it's I think I've been feeling 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 pretty filled. So I don't know if I have to resort to that. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of on the food front. Um, not as hungry anymore, so that's good news. Especially the past two weeks, there's like free food that um, a lot of uh, school events will serve, and I found those to be pretty unsatisfactory. One one of the primary reasons being that if there's like a student org event, most of the time the free food is gonna be pizza, and pizza is not very nutritious. Uh, yeah, it's like very oily, so not yeah, and it's just not yeah, it's not it's not a great meal. Um, so I don't want. I, I thought all free food was great, but sometimes just just relying on free food like very regularly is just you're, you're doing your body disservice. So the the negative results on your body might not just be worth the, the free the free food. Um, yeah. So that'll be another tip. You know, the free food's awesome to an extent, but if it's gonna sacrifice your nutrition, um, maybe not. Maybe uh, maybe reconsider it. At least that is what I've been following. I don't need as much free food anymore. But some of the student org events, um, they're going to have pretty good free food. So I just keep an eye out for those. Uh, how much time have I talked? Oh, 40 minutes. Uh, I did want to also talk about my midterm, but is there anything else I want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, my also, speaking of going back to like studying, I've adjusted my reading a little bit. Um, based on the needs of each of the class, but while able to retain and consistently uh, learn some of the, the, the essential parts of all, every class. So like, I will not adjust my strategic reading such that it compromises what I think are like essential things. And I have a link, long list of essential things that I'll have to like keep note of for each class. But yeah, each class demands a different amount to do well on cold calls. But, um, and also a different amount just to keep note of the essential like lessons for each of the class. Like, so one of, from one of my classes, uh, the slides are very, very clear. And then they act pretty much as case briefs. Brief, if you don't know, is pretty much a summary of a case that you're reading. And a lot of the, a lot of our readings, most of our readings is basically cases because yeah, the common law is comprised of judge-made law which happens in like courts and cases that, that are being tried. But yeah, one of my classes, slides are very clear. There's not as much of a need to brief the cases because her, the slides are like pretty much case briefs. Uh, and then on cold calls, uh, so a lot of these cases are gonna have like supplemental notes, but on cold calls, we don't get really asked about like the notes of the case, supplemental notes of the case. But another class, we there will be some discussion of the, the supplemental notes of the case. So if you want to do well on cold calls, you might have to read a little bit more for one of the classes than the other. And then, yeah, and the one in the class with like a lot of slides, we don't get cold called on the notes. And then it'll be very clear beyond the case and uh, what she thinks is important. 
and maybe they'll coincide with like the supplemental notes of of the case but we, we won't get cold called on it so there's no need for me to really like read the supplemental notes of that case for that class because i'm going to hear it from the professor anyway while on the other class we get cold called on it so yeah i think tailoring your readings such that you don't compromise like you yeah tailor your reading towards trying not to do as much work unnecessary work without compromising what you need to know at an essential and even a value adding basis you would think like more reading adds more value that's not necessarily the case like if the professor tells you what's going to be important then why read it yeah you're just like it's like duplicative work at that point so this means after one of the classes I don't read all the pages. I only read like the substantive portion of the cases for one of the um, classes. Another class, I will read everything. Uh, and then another class, uh, yeah, I, I might read everything. Yeah, so pretty much but before, I mean, it doesn't sound like much of a shit, but before I was like reading everything like very closely. But for one of the classes, I won't read very closely, but I will read so that I understand like, the facts and the holding. Um, and another class I'll read like very detailed because the pages are smaller, but they're all, but when we get into the cases and during classes, like we go into such detail. And then in my other class, I will read everything, but just not as much detail as just this aforementioned class. Um, but I'll still read everything. Uh, but so yeah, the levels of attention that I have for every class is a little different. And that's kind of how I've been approaching it. I don't know if this is the right way, uh, but it definitely uh, f feels efficient and, and effective. And everybody, I guess, will operate in a different way. Uh, I, I, I've been on a roller coaster ride with Quimby. Quimby is basically uh, a law school study resource. And the primary use for me and many other law school students is to get a summary of a case. And the value, maybe some of you may be wondering, why do you want to get a summary of the case when you have to read it anyway? Well, uh, one, if you don't read the case, sometimes you can't. Some people, sometimes we can't do all the readings. So far, I've been able to keep up the read up with the readings. But if you can't do the readings, you can just refer to Quimby, and you will pretty much have a summary of the case. Now, probably not good enough for cold calls. Probably not good enough for the you know final exam, but. Uh, you know, if, if you can't do it all, then, you know, Quimby is like a good last resort. And all, and beyond that, even if you do the readings, re seeing like Quimby has these videos that summarize the cases. Um, so be like, no video so far has like gone past five minutes. And then they'll have like these visuals, these animations in the video that go through the case, what the facts were of the case, what the holding was, what the reasoning, what the significance of the case was. So it's a very visual summary of a case and and sometimes the cases that you read have very complex language so having a very digestible visual summary of the case can be very helpful when you do read the case and it's complex so that you kind of cut through that complexity a little little bit um and you can digest it a little bit more easily so yeah so i i i, I did quimby at least initially and then i stopped because i was like okay i can still um I felt it was duplicative in a way, but some, for some of the more complex cases, it's been helpful to do Quimby. So I now use it sporadically um, here and there uh, when I feel like there's like a really long or complex case. And I just like, I just want to know this big summary point so that I can just facilitate my reading of this, this case. Um, yeah, so that's kind of my study process. 
so my first month, I've just been doing the readings. But I think some people advise that you should start like outlining. And outlining is basically kind of, uh, you know, people struggle. I have not heard many definitions of this until recently. And I, I don't know. I think some of the upperclassmen I talk to struggle to give a definition. But in my words, an outline basically is just a summary of everything you learned uh, in a class. And then you, you distill, uh, in this summary, you're going to distill what you think is going to be important for the final exam. Now, how you structure it generally is going to follow the, the, um, like the course syllabus, if it's going to be torts, like it's going to be intentional torts. And then what did you learn about from intentional torts? You learned about battery and assault. And then you, for each of the topics, you're going to list out the cases, um, some of the lessons, some of the rules, like the restatement or statutes. Um, yeah, just the concepts that you think, concept cases, knowledge that you think are relevant to the topics. And then you organize it uh, in such a way that it provides you with you a very distilled but detailed uh, summary of what you think is going to be helpful for you in the final exam and that represents the course that you took. Uh, and people have, um, some people have told me that starting to outline like this month, and I think there was like uh, a, a session, an academic session that had this advice as well, that starting to outline like during the month of October is a good idea. Um, so I've started to do that. And then another tip that I heard across a few different events was, like reviewing prior slides. So if you're in the month of October, reviewing slides from September or yeah, just reviewing slides in general uh, is a good idea just to just to keep that uh, knowledge in your head fresh and active. So I've been trying to do that a little bit as well. Yeah. Okay, last but not least, uh, my first midterm. Uh, my first midterm was on a civil procedure and it was, uh, it, you could take it wherever you wanted. You took it on your laptop. It was an open laptop uh, exam. Uh, we used a software called exam four. Uh, seems like a very rudimentary exam um, software program, but uh, I guess it did the job. Uh, we had an hour to do it. And I mean, I, I, I did some outlining. So I had an outline that I could uh, use for the exam. Uh, but I uh, I had a tough time within an hour. The word limit for the, for, so we had one question that we had to answer. I think this is what we call an issue spotter. Basically, we get like a fact pattern, so a situation that's described to you. And it was described to me in like in one page with a lot of facts of a hypothetical scenario. And then we have to answer whether we thought this was constitutional, constitutional or not. And... We had an hour to write a response to that. Um, and generally, you're just gonna have to list like what you think are considerations that make it constitutional and some considerations that don't make it constitutional. And I only wrote like 600 words. I found like I was pressed for time. I, I, I read the question for like maybe 10 minutes. It was long, there were a lot of facts. Um, and I was like, I don't know, how should I organize this? Should I like put this in a notebook? Should I keep it mentally? Like even just going through that decision-making process took some time. So luckily I think in the final exam, I won't, I will have a strategy, uh, but I was like coming up with a strategy on the fly. And then I tried to outline a little bit. Uh, when I say outline in this instance, I mean like in a separate notebook, like 
generally jot down how I'm gonna tackle this uh, this answer and this question. Uh, I maybe spent like 10 minutes doing that. And then so I was like left with like 40 minutes or 35 minutes. And uh, I felt like that was not enough to write like 800 words. I only ended up writing 600 words. So I was quite surprised with the time aspect. I thought I would have a good amount of time. Maybe 600 words is respectable, but I felt like I, I, I could use a little bit more time. So, uh, so the time management part was a little scary. And it's definitely something I would note as uh, uh, an uh, area of weakness that I'll have to work on. And then, uh, then, like when I went to the TA session, we we walked over the midterm. I realized, wow, like there are so many things that I missed. And there's so many things that I got as well, but there's so many things I missed. It's so minor that it like this minor miss that I did. what what is seems to be a detail that I missed, like was quite a, a substantial miss. Okay, that sounded very paradoxical. But what I mean was like, there was a plaintiff that was involved in the case, I didn't discuss that plaintiff. And seems like a small miss, but talking about that plaintiff's concerns and interests is a big part of a good answer. So yeah, that was not pretty. That was not good. So it was a very humbling experience and I hope to uh, learn from it. I, I have to say that the exam <laughs> was a, a discouraging, discouraging experience in some ways because uh, it was just a, it was a surprise. It was a, there was many surprises that for me that uh, yeah showcased gaps in my test taking and understanding. Well, maybe not the understanding, but more like the application of my understanding of, of yeah of the things I learned in class. But it was a practice midterm, um, so yeah, it is meant to give do just that, help you practice. At least that's what I should tell myself. All right, I think that's it for now. I covered quite a bit. Like even everything I've said is not really like reflective of my entire experience. I didn't even go over like the social part of law school. I guess I can add some brief notes, but I mean, some people here uh, really do love to gossip. It drains me <laughs> when I hear that. I, I just don't. Um, I don't know. I don't like being around conversations that are negative about others. Um, I, I, maybe a, a little bit. It's okay, but just too much. And when people seem to enjoy that, I just like I. I it just drains me. And some people seem to uh, enjoy that. So yeah. Well, but yeah. Apart from that, I mean, I've met some uh, cool people, of course, and some people that I met at the first. Uh, the first few weeks of law school, I'm getting to know them better. Um, yeah, just having a great community here of people that I get along with, uh, that I can laugh about with our experiences, um, both the good and bad. Yeah, and it's just, there's something empowering about knowing. What makes law school difficult a little bit, I mean, there are many things, but one of the other things that makes law school difficult is that if you were reading a case and you were kind of fascinated by it, and maybe you'd read this case, like even if you were not in law school, but when you have deadlines approaching and these deadlines uh, outpace the speed of your interest, like maybe you'd read like three or four pages of a case and then you read it tomorrow, but a deadline demands that you read it like in that instant, when your preoccupation becomes like meeting deadlines instead of you're having your interest drive your reading, 
that can kind of drain, I guess, by definition, your interest. And it might not be as interesting, it might not be as entertaining to study the law because of these deadlines. Um, and that's something that I found to be difficult sometimes. Um, but if you get faster reading, which I think I'm getting faster in reading, you, you make a little bit more space for you to engage in that interest for you. Uh, so that's, yeah, so that's been getting better for me. And another thing that I try to remind myself of during law school is that even though the things that we're learning seem to be very dry, it's, 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 it's asymmetry is very interesting. Like this dry rules, reasoning, statutes that we're all learning that seem so detached from like a very humane aspect of the law, like crimes, uh, people being wronged, their property or people be wronged and suffering physical harms or emotional distress. Um, but like it seems like the laws and the rules that govern the legality of that seem very dry, while what it governs is like very, very personal and intimate for folks. Um, yeah, there's this interesting asymmetry. So it's it, it's interesting to note the other part and recognize the other part of the asymmetry, like the human aspect of it. And what I tell myself sometimes is that what I'm learning today, even though it may seem very dry, it's going to have an impact on somebody in the future, a very profound impact on somebody, a family maybe, a corporation, many people potentially as well too and that's very empowering and humbling at the same time and uh, I think telling oneself that and myself that uh, helps motivate to continue to study the law and find appreciation in what could be a very dry subject um, yeah all right I think that's it for now uh, thanks for listening law school has been very interesting and in, engaging challenging and i am curious to see what my thoughts are in the next month i think yeah i will maybe post in the next two weeks but most likely like next month so until then bye